Well, my name is Stu. I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I got involved with this camp a number of years ago. And when I did, um, I was one of the young guys. And there were these old guys who stopped by every year. And they would maybe do some talking or hang out. And they were the founders of the group. And, uh, uh, well, we were the ones doing the work. They were just kind of standing back like proud grandparents and observing what was going on. And all of a sudden, so I, I got out of this because my kids started getting involved. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, I got a call this year. said to be involved. I get to be one of the old guys. And so here I am, I'm one of the old guys, I get to tell the stories and the old, the old things that happened from the past, but uh, what we're going to do this week is take a journey through uh, first, uh, first Peter. We're actually going to look at pretty much every part of it, but it's a, it's a bird's eye view. We're taking the big picture. So if you have an opportunity during the day to kind of close up and read more carefully, um, that would be a great thing. Uh, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, this is uh, my family. My wife hates this picture because we were really tired. But it's the only one that I had that everybody was in it. So uh, we've got uh, Skyler, who is now 16. He does not look like that anymore. He's over there. And uh, that's me, more or less the same. There's Kelly. And uh, there's Bryson, who's been here before. And uh, Lindsay, who's also been here in various stages. It's taken a few years ago. And that gives you a sense of who we are. And uh, uh, it's just, it's fun to be back. It's good to be with you. It's great to see how, the, how God has been at work in the camp. And one of the things I want to do this week is, uh, again, that's, what, what do the old guys do? Let me tell you what the old guys do. The old guys tell the stories. And I'm going to tell some stories this week. And a part of those stories help you see uh, this big story that's going on. And what is the big story? And what I want you to see in the big story from uh, from First Peter is that God is always at work, and God is always doing something big. And when you're in the middle of it, you can't always see what that is. In fact, usually when you're in the middle of it, it really doesn't make any sense at all. That's why you need old guys to tell stories. And the old guys come in, and they and they remember way back when when God did this, and God did that, and God did this, and God did that, and all of a sudden, as you face your trial, or as uh, we're calling it here, pain with a purpose, as you face whatever pain or trial you're facing today, those stories nurture your faith, they build up your faith, and you say, you know, God did all these things in the past. Maybe God is doing something right now in me. And of course, of course he is. But you're in the middle of it, and you can't see it. But when you hear the stories of how God has worked in the past, how he works in the life of God's people, what it does is it actually... It actually builds your faith to believe in the middle of whatever pain you're experiencing that there actually is a purpose, that God is doing something bigger than what you can see. And if you'll trust him, he's, he's going to surprise you. Uh, and what I found out over the years is that uh, I plot and plan and scheme. I've got all kinds of ideas of what I think God ought to do. And uh, I think God does it a different way. And you know what? God always does it a better way. Um, David talked about, he didn't know, he had on a great theme last night. He talked about God um, uh, just praying a simple prayer and then letting God do with it whatever he wants to. And uh, I can relate to that. I've prayed, I'm going to share a couple of those simple prayers that I've prayed today. Uh, one of those prayers that I prayed years ago when I was in college, uh, 
through high school and so forth, a lot of people said, you need to be a pastor. You, you really ought to be a pastor. And by the time I got to college, I realized, I don't want to be a pastor. And, uh, but enough people had said it. One day, my sophomore year in college, I was walking down one of the streets of the University of Nebraska, one of the paths, and I finally just said, okay, Lord, if you want me to be a pastor, you're going to have to make me want to be a pastor because I don't want to be a pastor. So there. <laughs> that, was, that was it. And I, didn't I went to teacher's college, and I taught English for three years. And then this friend of mine, Hugh Barlett, my pastor mentor, one day after I'd been teaching for a number of years, he said, you know, I think you ought to, I think you ought to go to seminary. And I thought about it. And, uh, and I realized something. I actually wanted to go. I really wanted to go. And the prayer had been answered. Uh, it took about six years, but God answered the prayer. Uh, simple prayers. Later on, I'll share with you another simple prayer I've prayed for a number of years. Well, let's get right to First Peter. Um, we're going to, instead of reading it all in one chunk, uh, as we go through this, you'll see in the handout, we've got a chunk of text. We're going to work through it. And what I want us to see first is the foundation as we start uh, of this teaching, as we start in the text. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Um, Peter doesn't waste much time as he gets into what he calls the foundation. This was the house that we built, and one of the things uh, that, that we actually fixed up, one of the first things we had to do was put a new foundation in it. And that's actually a trench that was dug into the house, uh, underneath the house, and so they, without moving the house, wall by wall, rebuilt the foundation. Because we realized that no matter what we did, if we, uh, you know, if we didn't do it right, starting at the very beginning, it would all then uh, fall apart. And so the foundation is very, very important uh, for a house. It's very important for your faith. And uh, as Peter begins this letter, he uses what I would call the language of sovereignty. And we talk about sovereignty in our churches quite a bit. It just means that God is the king. And he rules over every part of his creation, and he does what he wants to do. God is God, and we're not. And so that language comes through. Uh, he talks about you, God's people, as being God's elect, that God does something. And God is the God who is a saving God. And, uh, and it talks about you as being those who have been chosen. And God is a saving God. God is an electing God. Uh, God chooses you to be his child. And he does this according to his foreknowledge. And foreknowledge isn't just knowing something in advance. Foreknowledge is, is uh, actually foreloving. That God has a love for his people. He has a love for you. You belong to Jesus. He has a love for you that went all the way back to the very, very beginning. Um, and this is his loving plan. And he has given us new birth. Whatever you have in, in your Christian experience that's good, it's come from God. 
He has given you uh, everything, including your new birth. And uh, we live in a world in which a lot of other foundations are offered. We're going to talk about some of those foundations later. Uh, but this is the one true foundation that the scripture speaks of, the foundation uh, of God's sovereignty. I've put it this way before. If my salvation rests on anything that I do, okay, I'm damned. I'm going to hell. That's it. I'm done. I'm finished. If 99.999% of my salvation is God, what God does, and 0.001% is what I do, I'm damned. I'm going to hell. I'll screw it up. I need a solid foundation. I need a foundation that can't shake or be rattled. And uh, so God provides that. Uh, he, uh, his sovereignty and his election uh, provide a, a solid base. The foundation continues. He says, you've got an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Um, that uh, teaching, as it develops here, is going to be very, very important. Uh, for what God was teaching me. He says, through faith we are shielded by God's power. And so faith is the instrument that God uses, and faith is what God grows in us. And sometimes, by the way, you'll notice that you grow because your faith is, is strong, and, and you, you succeed. And sometimes your faith grows because you're weak and you're broken, and you screw up. And God takes faith and obedience and is learning to pull them together so that your faith is seen in your obedience and your obedience is reflected uh, in your faith. Um, well, let's move ahead here. He goes right on to talk about trials then. With that foundation of God's sovereignty, that God is he's king over his universe, uh, Peter talks about trials. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, okay, in this, this sovereign care of God, Though now, for a little while, you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Trials. Um, what is the purpose of trials? Uh, this is the number one question that comes to us when it's uh, when trials are on the the uh, scene. Let me back up there for a second. People always want to know why, um, but I've found something else in the life of the church. Not only do people want to know why the trials come, but I think in my life what I've experienced is this. Most Christians believe somewhere in the secret part of their soul that if I live my life the right way, if I do the right things, if I, if I do my Bible study, if I do my devotions, if I go to church, if I'm good to my neighbor, if I'm kind at school, if I get good grades, that somehow God is going to keep trouble away from me. If I live life the right way, I could avoid trials. And I want you to see that this sovereign God who loves you and who elects you and, and who saves you and chooses you, makes you his child, is the same God who comes right into this discussion and says, by the way, trials are going to come. They absolutely will come. There's no doubt about it in your life. So uh, since we know they're going to come, um, we want to know why, right? Why? Um, well, 
could start to think about that. The Bible doesn't always say exactly why, but the Bible does hint for us as to sometimes why. The problem is it doesn't say why to me and why to you exactly at the moment I'm going through the trial. So I'm always trying to ask why. Well, here are some things, at least the Bible says, that sometimes God is doing through trials. Sometimes trials come for loving discipline. I need to be corrected. God loves me, and so he's sending something my direction to help uh, shape me and, and form me. Uh, sometimes it is uh, a test of our commitment. This was the uh, case with Job. Uh, Job didn't do anything. Um, but uh, God was testing his commitment. He allowed Satan to test him to see exactly the level of his faith. And so sometimes trials come uh, as a test. This is the one that we cling to. Uh, Romans 8.28. People who are barely Christians know this one. God causes you know, all things to work together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose, right? I don't know what God is doing, but it's got to be something good in this. And so, but the problem is, oftentimes it's a good we can't currently see. We're blind to it. Uh, it's said that on the D-Day invasion, as the men were storming Normandy Beach, that the men on the ground said, there's no way we can win. That all they saw was death and, and blood and murder and, and it's just horror all around them. And then they said the pilots who were flying up ahead and saw the troop movements looked at everything and said, there's no way we can lose. There's a different perspective. You're in the trenches. You're in life. You're living life. You're saying, why? What's going on? And God is sovereignly doing something, and he sees exactly what's going on. And it's for, it's for good, but it's a good you can't currently see because you're in the middle of it. Uh, and I've certainly seen that in my life. Sometimes you experience trials because of uh, their generational sins at work. People who've done things ahead of you and you've inherited a situation which you have no control over. And that's a part of also of God's plan that he works through that. Um, and sometimes uh, the Bible says God just does things to demonstrate his power. There was a man who was born blind. And uh, the uh, Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, okay, who sinned? He sinned or did his parents sin? Who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus' answer is nobody sinned. He was born blind so I could show my power, and Jesus healed him. And sometimes uh, that happens in the midst of trials. Uh, there are uh, also, this is uh, those are the purpose for trials for those people who love God, who know God. But uh, there also is a purpose for trials for people who don't know God. And one of the primary purposes for trials for people who don't know God is that they would know him. And so that God brings trouble in our lives so that we finally start crying out to God. The psalmist says, anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's, uh, we hear that in the book of Acts. And so when trouble comes into our life, sometimes we cry out to God for the first time. Uh, we realize how much we need him. And then sometimes God brings trials to unbelievers uh, for our judgment. And we see that in the Bible from time to time. And we hope that's not the case. We hope that God is doing something good. Zion had a season of trial. Um, I was actually preaching on this verse on June 3rd. Yes, June 3rd, 2007. 
just a little over two years ago. And I was preaching through First Peter, and we were talking about God refining us through the fire, and how uh, God, through the fire, he, he just burns away the things that are unimportant. And it's uh, in, the, in the old King James said, he burns away the dross, and the dross is the worthless stuff. When the, when the fire gets hot enough, the gold is purified, and all the impurities in the gold then are, are burned away, and you get a you get a pure product. And so this is what part of what trials do for our faith. So I'm preaching this to the congregation that, that God will burn away the dross, that the, all that what's really important is what will continue on. This is July 3rd, 2007. On uh, July 9th, excuse me, June 9th, just six days later, I got a call uh, at 5 in the morning to get down to the church. There's trouble. Um, before I get to that story, <laughs> let me tell you another story. <laughs> I got you hanging. Okay. Let me tell you another story. Um, the story of Zion Church. I sensed that uh, we were at a nice location, but it wasn't big enough. And we needed more room. And uh, I am not a prophet, nor a son of a prophet, but um, this is just what happened. I had a dream. I believe that that dream, God was telling me that we ought to go downtown. And uh, I don't get a lot of dreams, and I'm not a touchy-feely, charismatic sort of guy, but I had a deep sense in my soul that this is what God wanted us to do. And so um, I asked the congregation to pray at a congregational meeting. And uh, I thought that maybe there would be some building that would come up for sale that we could purchase, and we could move downtown, and that would be a, that'd be a good plan, right? I had a good plan. Maybe this is what God might do. So I asked the congregation to pray. Uh, within 30 days after calling the congregation to pray, I got a call from a guy, and he said, well, our building isn't for sale, but how about a merger? Let's merge two congregations. And uh, so I said, well, you won't like the terms, but I would, I'd rather buy a place. He said, well, try me out. Okay. Here are the terms. We have to stay in the in the PCA. Um, our church would lead it. Your church leaders would need to step down, and we would have to interview your church members who are left. They didn't have many, but the ones who want to be a full member of the church, we need to hear a Christian testimony from them. And uh, that those are three things that we would need in order to have this merger take place. And uh, so they said, "Okay, we'll talk about it." Got a call a week later. He said. Sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> what? Sounds good. Let's. Uh, well, what are your terms? What do you want? And he said, well, you know, this church has been here a long time. It's a historic church, and the name is Zion. If you could just work Zion in somewhere. You know, at that point, our church was named Covenant Presbyterian Church. Make it Covenant Zion or something like that. Do a hyphen. I just said, you know, I don't believe in hyphenated marriages. Uh, Zion's a great name. Let's just be Zion Church. And uh, that was good with them. On June 1st, uh, 1997, uh, the two churches uh, merged and Zion Church PCA was formed. On June 1st, which happens to be my birthday, it was a pretty good day. Uh, we signed the merger documents, and on that day, not only then did we have a church that we didn't have to buy, but uh, the former members of Zion Church, who now are a part of Zion Church PCA, handed us a checkbook with $30,000 in it. I wanted to buy a church, 
God said, how about you just have a church and take $30,000 as well? God has pretty good plans. He's got really, really good plans. And so uh, we planted a daughter church at our old location. And so now we were two instead of one, which was part of our vision. We wanted to have six or seven churches in Lincoln. And the daughter church was doing well. They had a facility to work out of. We were growing our new facility. We were developing it. And, of course, that required some money. And so it was more of a downtown location. So we were purchasing this and that. And, uh, and so we were making progress. We had grown to about 400, and we were excited about the possibility of eventually planting another church, but we felt it was important to sink roots and to develop the ministry. And so we were planning a, a children's wing that would have a gym and some classrooms. We could actually expand the ministry and sink roots into this neighborhood that we had felt called to. And we were very excited about that. We were going to have a groundbreaking, a uh, ceremonial groundbreaking on June 10th, 2007, and this is where the stories now come together. But we did, because on June 9th, 2007, I got the call at 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, and uh, that was a day I'll never forget. That's what the church looked like. I got a call. When the firemen came down, they... Um, they thought the, the fire had started in the kitchen. They were right. That's where it did start. And they got the fire out of the kitchen. They didn't realize that the fire had actually spread. And uh, because of infrared technology, uh, they told the firemen then. They were high-fiving. They thought they got it out. They were very excited that they had saved the building. But the infrared said that it was in the attic and it was spreading rapidly. And so they told the men to get out. About 14 minutes after that call to get out, the roof collapsed. And so uh, God spared the lives of the firemen who were seeking through the building to see if anybody was left in the building. Um, they, uh, they tried at first, what, what they normally do is to try to, to offensively put the fire out and save the building. When it was clear they couldn't save the building, they shifted to defensive mode. They tried to save all the adjoining uh, houses who were next to the church. And uh, so when I came to the church, uh, that's what it looked like. Uh, smoke, uh, the fire was just blowing right out of the attic uh, through what used to be stained glass. And, uh, and the firemen were doing everything they could to protect the neighborhood. Um, so we began gathering and we began praying and we began wondering, God, what are you up to? Okay, I know I preached that the fire burns away the dross, but I didn't mean it this literally. <laughs> and uh, and a man that, that I had uh, helped lead to Christ, he came to Christ later in life, his name was Jack. Jack was the head of the project who worked through all of the details, and his, his theology you could probably put in a thimble, because he just didn't, he didn't know a lot. But he did know that, that God is God, and that God has a plan, because he'd seen that plan in the life of the church. And here I am wondering, what in the world is God up to? And Jack... 80-year-old Jack came alongside of me, and as he looked at those flames, and he, he looked at me, and he said, this is the best thing that ever happened to Zion Church. <laughs> Jack, you planned the building. You, you, you worked on this for years. You poured your heart into this project. You, you did all the meetings and made it happen, and you really don't even know the Bible that well. <laughs> but he knows God now. 
And Jack puts his arm around me and he says, it's the best thing that ever happened inside the church. Okay. That's what it looked like after the fire. Uh, the building was uh, unsalvageable. Uh, and we had a lot more pictures that we could show. Well, we had been had a vision for planting multiple churches. And a part of that multiple churches um, meant uh, that, uh, again, planting daughter churches. But we had put so much money and so many resources into planting, uh, establishing this church and uh, expanding the building and getting more property on this site that actually we were uh, going to be about a million dollars in debt. Um, and, and we had two guys who wanted a church plant, but we had to deal with this money situation. We need to get this project finished. Um, and we weren't sure what timetable we could do for the church planting. And then the fire hit. And then everything changed. And the first thing we started doing was we realized that our plans weren't God's plans, so we needed to start praying. And so we just prayed for a few weeks and was said, Lord, show us, show us the way. Because obviously we picked the wrong way. <laughs> uh, show us the way. So we started praying. And the guy who was plant, planning on planting the daughter church and I both at the same time talked to each other and said, I think I see what God is doing. Um, there was another church building that was for sale. And that building could be purchased uh, with insurance money, with money left over uh, for church planting and to pay off all of our debt. And we were going to have to be a million dollars in debt and wait three or four years to church plant. And after the fire, because of insurance, there was no debt. Uh, we, were, we had enough funds to actually initiate the daughter church. They've been going for a year now and had about 130 people at their worship services on a Sunday. And uh, we were able to have money left over to pay cash for an existing building instead of uh, expanding our building. And the new church is headed right back down to the old neighborhood. So the neighborhood we felt called to is still going to have a presence in our city. Um, God, and this is, uh, this is the new Zion. Um, what's the purpose of trials? Uh, it could be a variety of things. If you ask me why God is doing what he's doing, um, you know, we can explore it together. But I got to tell you, most of the time, I don't know until I see it in the rearview mirror. And then the rearview mirror is just as clear as day. That God was leading step by step by step. And that's why we have to tell the stories. You have to hear the stories. Because as you come to the next step of your life, and you don't know what God is doing, and you're wondering what God is up to, and you feel like your life is in flames, See, when you hear the stories, you remember something. God is sovereign. He's good. That he loves his people. That he's always working for his plan. And somehow, he builds your faith to believe it's true for you. It's true for you. There's another simple prayer I used to pray. I drive through Lincoln, and I'd say, Lord... All these big buildings say, Lord, if they're not preaching the gospel, give their building to somebody who will. If they're not preaching the gospel, give their building to somebody who will. And then he did. For me, 
And this daughter church that we planted a year ago and is going well is looking for a temporary location to be downtown, figuring out how they're going to rent and what it's going to look like and making all of their plans and plotting and scheming and putting their budget together. And then they got a call. There was another church who said, we're closing our doors and we just want a healthy church to be in our facility. Could we give it to you? God heard my prayer. All those little arrow prayers that you're shooting up there, I hope you mean them because he's listening. He really is listening. He's a sovereign king who works through trials. He loves his people. And when you hear the stories, you will know that the story is true. It will be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this day for your kindness and mercy to us in Christ. That you, you love your church. You love your people. You love us so much that you sovereignly, from all eternity past, plan to save us and claim us and make us yours. And you love us so much that despite our sin and our brokenness, our fallenness, that you bring trials into our lives to burn away what's stupid and foolish and grow our faith. Father, I pray that for each person here this week, that you would help us to get a sense in the middle of the storm what it is you're doing for us. And this is true for each person here. Whatever the story is, whatever the brokenness is, whatever the turmoil, the burning that they experience today, that they would know that you are a sovereign king who has loved them from all eternity and that you are at work in the midst of their trouble. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.